Simple Beep, episode 30, 10 years of Intel Max. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we apologize that this episode is one week late, because I had a cold last week, <laughs> and uh, we uh, had to postpone a little bit. But here we are. Happy New Year. Uh, welcome to January 2016, and that's going to tie into the topic of our episode today. It's, uh, it's a little time-sensitive. We tried to have it right on the nose, but I think we're still going to be close enough as it is. But before we get into our time-sensitive topic, uh, let's do a little bit of follow-up from last year. Yes, <laughs> our last episode was in last year, and it was about software packaging. We had a couple items of follow-up regarding that. The first comes from listener... Yannick Magnin, I'm sorry if I pronounced your name incorrectly, he reminded us that Panic, our beloved software company, did have at least one bit of software sold in a retail box, and it was Mac MP3, a little bit of rebranding of their Audion software, and it was only in Japan. I would say that's why I didn't know about it and skipped over that detail, but he <laughs> nicely pointed us to where they mentioned this themselves in their Audion story, which I have read and even mentioned on this show. So I should have known better. Yeah, I think we both mentioned it and we've both read it several times. And you said, how did we, how did we not know that? But I think that is, that's one of the tiniest details in that story. And it was obviously not marketed to us. We were users of Audion in the US. So it was something that we would have never seen except scrolling through that story. And by that point, uh, you're pretty wrapped up in all of the drama of who's going to buy Audion, how are they going to get stay in business or get put out of business. But part of their business plan was real retail box software in Japan. And apparently it went fairly well. Yeah. Another piece of follow-up regarding, uh, regarding software boxes is friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, posted uh, shortly after we posted our last episode uh, an article that he has up on his blog, 512 Pixels, that is a full, complete chronicle of iLife and iWork packaging. I know that we kind of glossed over iLife and iWork. We mentioned a couple of the designs in there, but this is a really good roundup. And I think he's gone to like the official Apple PR sites deep in the bowels of apple.com and pulled out the, uh, the really nice product photos of these high resolution and has them all in order of their release. And you can really see some of the details in the artwork which uh, and the various styles that there are and some things that I hadn't really even noticed before. I think my favorite one is on the iWork 05 box. The general theme is that it's a giant light bulb with all of your work-related things going on inside of it, but it's also like a balloon, and at the bottom, there's a teeny tiny hand holding it up between thumb and forefinger very daintily. <laughs> Um, so it's a delightful little touch in the, in the iWork, uh, in the iWork art there. There's also like a globe and a cat and packing tape, all kinds of things going on in these packages. I think in the, in some of the iWork boxes, they were like, this is for work. You have to look like you're busy. There have to be lots of things going on. Yeah. I had been thinking about doing a, a retrospective on iWork and iLife when preparing for our software boxes episode. And one thing I noticed is that one of the early iLife boxes is uh, the visual metaphor on the box is a bunch of jigsaw puzzle pieces fitting together. And each piece has a, a little photo representing its iLife application in it, like a uh, headphones for iTunes, a camera for iPhoto and so on. And I noticed that Microsoft Office a couple years before that, used the same metaphor where like a puzzle piece for Word, a puzzle piece for Excel, and so on. And so for a lot of people saying Microsoft rips off of Apple for things like Windows 95. Was it that, what's the Steve Jobs quote? Uh, that great artists steal, perhaps falsely attributed to him. <laughs> right, exactly. As with most of the quotes from Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah. And one final piece of follow-up regarding software packaging, listener Marcus Mendez wrote to us and said, guys, I don't think I'll ever be able to unsee the lady wearing the Sherlock hat on the system 8.5 box ever. Sorry about that, Marcus. <laughs> Good to know that we're affecting lives here on Simple Beep. 
Um, follow up on a different thread. This is follow up that goes way, way back uh, to an earlier episode. And we're really happy to see that people are going back and uh, listening to the back catalog. This one goes back to episode six that was on keyboards. Listener Braden Williams said that he had an Alpha Smart in the mid 2000s. And we remembered that Alpha Smarts existed in the 90s when we were in school. There were uh, Apple desktop bus ones that you would plug in and it would spew out all of your text. And that was the main feature of Alpha Smart was that it was just plain text input, not like a real laptop or even like the eMate or netbooks or anything that came afterwards. But Alpha Smart still exists and they're still creating products. But apparently in the early to mid 2000s, they had a version of the Alpha Smart that ran Palm OS and actually ran it on the tiny screen of the Alpha Smart. It was still that really wide uh, and very short display that looked like it would only hold a few lines of text, but it actually ran a full version of Palm OS. And there was even a mode where if you turned it uh, 90 degrees on the side, it became like an extremely tall Palm Pilot. <laughs> and he said that this was great to have in school uh, because unlike uh, a laptop or today a smartphone or when we were in school around the same time as him, graphing calculators, which were well-known to harbor games and things that were non-educational, everyone thought that the AlphaSmart was completely safe and only did text-based input. Um, but he had a full copy of Palm OS running on there, which I think is pretty fascinating. I think the other thing along there that you know, I had never heard of this product uh, we'll link to, there's a full PDF manual for it uh, floating around on the web, and we'll link to that. I think the interesting thing about this was that, you know, I had never put together this software and hardware combination. And I think that's because for a long part of Palm's history, they were of the Apple model, which is we make the hardware and we make the software. Uh, their combination coming from the same company makes the platform so excellent. And then Later, as Palm started to falter, uh, they spun off the operating system into a separate company, Palm Source, and basically started licensing it out. Uh, the, was it the Handspring Visor was one of the first ones that was an official licensed Palm clone. And then apparently as things spiraled further and further out of control for Palm uh, into the pre and the webOS days, Palm OS licensing was really rampant and even came to these other platforms that and other companies that we didn't quite expect. And uh, it's delightful to find an old gadget that uh, would go along with, with a classic Mac that you've never, ever heard of. Also, keep sending those in if you have them. And now on to our topic for this episode, Apple's transition to Intel processors. We're celebrating a big anniversary. Yes, it was 10 years ago as we record this, plus or minus a few days, that Apple released the first Macs that had Intel processors inside them instead of the IBM-based PowerPC G5s, G4s, and G3s, and before that, just straight-up PowerPCs. And that transition was, of course, a huge transition uh, going from the original architecture that the Mac was based on, which was the Motorola 68K processors. So those were like the 68040 and various processors in that microarchitecture line that went all the way from the original Mac up until the dawn of the PowerPC, Power Mac era. And I was looking up uh, the the sixty eight uh, the sixty eight thousand, the original one on on Wikipedia because that was the processor that powered the original Apple Macintosh and the one twenty eight K. But there were also some uh, some interesting other products that apparently used it. Um, the uh, the Sega Genesis, uh, as it was known in the in the U.S., uh, used a sixty eight thousand processor. Oh wow! And uh, going along with what we were just talking about, this I did not know because this product came out in the early two thousands and was revolutionary and, and amazing at the time. The TI-89 graphing calculator uses the 68, 68K processor at 10, 12, or 16 megahertz. A seriously, seriously underpowered piece uh, of equipment uh, that is probably still in use to this day. 
I think so. Yeah, I think the 89 had a full QWERTY keyboard and was like banned on the SAT and that kind of thing because they thought it was basically basically a computer. It could run drug wars. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that's what would get you into trouble at school. You got to hide that on your AlphaSmart. Yeah, and when I was looking at this transition, I found a nice little oral history of the transition to PowerPC as well. And it brought up the interesting tidbit I had not heard that they at that Apple had planned to introduce the first PowerPC machines on January 24th, 1994, which would have been the 10th anniversary of the original Macintosh. Kind of having like a nice 10-year gap from like one evolutionary leap to the next. So here we are in in, uh, 2016, and we've almost been in exact 10-year stages because we had uh, 84, then 94, and then 2006 uh, with major architecture changes in Macs. And of course, it's not just architecture changes that happen at transitions. There can be software transitions as well. And the other big transition in Apple's past is going from the classic Mac OS, which we know and love so dearly on this show, to the modern OS X. The transition kind of came to a a clear end when Steve Jobs held a funeral for the classic Mac OS at a keynote, um, complete with a, a coffin that he put a large Mac OS 9 box into. That that one goes down in history as the weirdest Apple keynote ever. <laughs> yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. I think that's uh, pretty incontrovertible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's now focus on this this move from PowerPC to Intel. I think there are some really interesting parallels with the previous PowerPC transition, though. Uh, the, the The Motorola processors in the original. Uh, Mac architecture, that 68K architecture, uh, it seemed like, okay, you know, Motorola was primarily just a chip maker at that point. They weren't, you know, they weren't known for uh, StarTAC phones or anything like that in 1984. It hadn't come along yet. But I think one of the interesting things that happened with the PowerPC and the Power Mac transition was that, okay, uh, we're getting this new architecture and basically no one had had heard of it. At least I was unfamiliar with it until it was, you know, until it was becoming a part of the Macintosh landscape. And the thing that was interesting was, okay, they, they were branded as PowerPC. It said in you know, small letters on, on the front of some of the original Power Macs had the little PowerPC logo very tastefully. Um, and it was, you know, they were the Power Macintoshes. It was something that was the primary use for them for that new architecture and it was something that Apple really owned, and it seemed like it was their thing. Uh, but if you cracked open one of those original Power Macs, as I did several times, because we had a Power Mac 6100 and did all kinds of weird upgrades on it and had to replace the battery several times, those kinds of things. If you went in there and looked at the logic board, what was the name of the company on on the chip? It was IBM, which seemed like in 1994, still seemed like the enemy. Because it, it, in at that time, there was still the notion of the IBM-compatible PC, even though Windows had moved us kind of far beyond that. There was that notion that there was an IBM mar- microarchitecture, uh, which was the x86 architecture, right? Mm-hmm. And that was, that was manufactured by the enemy, and there it was running your new Power Macs in 1994. And the exact same thing happens here with uh, rumors of a transition to Intel. Intel is the enemy. Just before that, uh, Apple had been running advertisements that were just ab- throwing Intel under the bus, saying that those Pentiums, those Windows PCs are slow, the, G- the G4s, the G5s are going to eat them for lunch. Um, there was a huge anti-Intel public campaign, not just a not just a sentiment among the nerds that oh that's part of the that's part of the rival camp apple had been actively trashing intel on primetime tv in time magazine in major uh in major ways for years and for them to have a huge agreement where they were going to be supplying processors for computers for them in the future was going to be kind of a big coup so there were rumors in 2005 and one of the interesting things here was that you know the Apple rumor mill has been uh, 
has, of course, been very productive forever. Uh, but this was still at a time where Apple was pretty good on secrecy. But one of the interesting things was that this story went beyond rumors. And in the lead up to WWDC in 2005, there was one of these very first, but now we see as a pattern, leak, kind of deliberate leak, perhaps, stories to the Wall Street Journal, which is still one of the news sources that tends to publish things basically as fact kind of a week before a big Apple announcement. But this was the first time that that had ever happened. And no one was really sure what the Wall Street Journal was doing publishing this story so confidently because that just seemed like they couldn't possibly have the sources to say in such detail what was going to happen with this alleged deal between Apple and Intel. It seemed impossible from a PR standpoint, and it also seemed very difficult from a technology standpoint. But it was actually happening uh, in the summer of 2005 at WWDC, Steve Jobs got up on stage and was doing the keynote, and he acknowledged the fact that the rumors had been swirling for a while, and he made the announcement with a single slide in his keynote presentation, which said in big letters, it's true, with the E in true subscripted, much like the E in the Intel logo, which runs with the uh, the crossbar of the E on the baseline. Yeah, it was it was big news that the Mac was going to transition from being on these IBM PowerPC processors to Intel chips. And no one really knew what it meant and what it entailed. Steve laid out a plan. You know, this is it's a huge transition. The the base level code of the operating system and of your application software is going to need to be recompiled. It's going to run on a different architecture. The the hardware, what hardware on the logic board and, and other uh, I.O. systems are going to have to be changed to accommodate all of this. He laid out a, basically a two-year transition plan. This was WWDC 2005. He said, by this time in 2007, we think we'll have it done. All of our Macintosh hardware products are going to be powered by Intel chips and our operating system, OS X, is going to be compiled uh, for Intel. It's going to be running all your the big applications natively, and we'll have stopgaps in the place to uh, to accommodate for some older software that's still playing catch up. Yeah, but he made sure to frame it in terms of these other transitions that we had mentioned before the the sixty eight k to PowerPC transition and the OS nine to OS ten transition, both of which he was careful to say these took two to three years. And developers, this didn't kill your business. You were still able to maintain, you know, if you're a longtime Mac developer, if you went through those transitions, you know that you made it through it. We provided tools and it, it didn't kill your business and came out hopefully better on the other side. Of course, um, maybe the, the power PC transition was as, as Apple's, uh, Apple was waning a little bit, but the OS 9 to OS 10 transition looked a bit more promising. And this transition was also showing a lot of promise because it meant that there was some some industry standardization going on. And you just mentioned tools available for developers to ease with the transition. One such thing was some developers got to register and receive a PowerMac G5 case with Intel inside as the stickers uh, came so close to saying. I mean, that, that was another just... To, to interrupt, that's what was one other part of the deal that everyone said, how is Apple going to work this? They are doing a really good deal here because as we know, part of Intel's marketing was that, okay, you would like to create Windows PCs that use our chips. You will put a sticker on the outside of the case. And if you mention the fact that you use an Intel processor in one of your TV ads, you will play our little our little ditty of Intel Inside at the end of your ad. And you knew that that was not going to fly under Steve Jobs' Apple. <laughs> there was just absolutely no chance that Apple was going to put ugly garish stickers on the outside of their beautifully designed products. 
And there was definitely no way that instead of it saying think different for a couple of seconds at the end of an ad, that they were going to play the Intel inside chime. So coming out of WWDC 2005, a couple developers got to have in their shops a Mac powered by Intel. Well, it was announced at the at the WWDC exactly what they were going to be getting and exactly the terms on which they were going to be getting it. I think it was $999. Um, contrast, what was it? The $1 Apple TV developer kits <laughs> yeah. that went out last year. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah App- Apple, race to the bottom on the prices there. <laughs> <laughs> but you were going to get for a, basically $1,000, you were going to get access to one of these custom-built developer rigs. And they said, like, this is, I think the words that they said are, this is not a product. This is not a Mac. This is not an Apple product. This does not have like a, an Apple model number. This is a developer unit. You are not even really buying it. You are renting it for the next year and a half. And then at the end of 2006, you had better turn it back to us. Or I don't know what, you know, I don't think you ever want Apple's repo man after you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what happened with the iPhone 4 that got. Uh, lost a whole big, whole big thing. And even uh, iFixit, who got the Apple TV dev kit and did their famous iFixit teardown, they kind of got blacklisted from future things. They got taken out of the App Store. Yeah, I mean, you know, you are signing a contract when you do something like that. And so these were these were limited time machines. But they definitely did go out into the hands of de- developers, and they weren't secret. During that time, it was fine for you to you know, talk about, to a limited extent, how things were going, what you were using the system for, and even to post videos of them on the internet. Yes, this is uh, our obligatory panic story of the episode. I realize that these are these are coming more uh, frequently now. The first one was in follow-up. It doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> and uh, this is a story posted at Daring Fireball about the dev kit that Panic had. But it's also about Craig Hockenberry of the Icon Factory and Chalk Lock Twitter fame, who was wondering... Just in general, like how is the performance going? What is it like uh, to have this unit running your software? And the guys at Panic decided to play a little prank on him. They sent him a video of the the tower, the CPU unit being turned on and immediately making a horrendous noise. Yeah, because the concern was that the well, the the dev units were not using the new architecture of Intel chips that were actually going to go into the future Macs. They were using Pentium 4s that were, who knows where Apple got them. <laughs> you know, you could just go buy them off the shelf because they were just stock PC parts. And the, the concern was that in this existing case that was not really designed for them, that there would be some issues with noise. And it was true that they threw a lot of heat and Apple actually put custom fans in those dev units to dissipate the heat and make the machines usable. So they were worried about fan noise. People are still worried about fan noise to this day in their various Apple products. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they made this video and I had never seen this before. I did not see this when, when it was current news and there's two video clips in there and I played the first one. And like you said, Brian, just horrendous noise. And I go, that sounds like a vacuum cleaner. Well, it turns out it is a vacuum cleaner. Because <laughs> they have an extended cut of the same video <laughs> where they go and they carefully turn it on and someone behind them at the exact same moment flicks on like a dust buster. <laughs> yeah, so the camera pans from just having the the dev kit in frame over to this guy who's using like a tiny dust buster on the floor, like bent over. Everything's exaggerated to comic effect. Very much play, play acting, actually using a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, it's it's just wonderful. I also love that these are posted on during Fireball just as QuickTime movies. Because this was posted in 2008, like YouTube existed then. YouTube didn't exist when these videos were taken or just barely existed. Um, but yeah. I think that's uh, pretty entertaining. (laughs) So like I said, uh, one of the things that people were concerned about was how this architecture was going to behave, uh, what kind of heat it was going to throw, what kind of power it was going to 
use in terms of electricity and what kind of power in terms of CPU performance it was going to deliver. But in the keynote, the introduction keynote, uh, the main reason that is put forward for why Apple was going to Intel, it, I mean, Steve Jobs is really playing this up. He's like, he, he says things like, why would you do this? This seems insane. This seems like a huge a huge project and you're going to screw everybody up all of your developers he, he was milking it a little bit uh, but he says that the main reason that they went to intel was for power consumption and he says that they were looking seriously at what he calls performance per watt of the power pc chips that existed and what the roadmap was for those in the future which was apparently lagging and the Intel current chips and the roadmap for the future Intel chips, which, as we know today, with the benefit of hindsight, that Intel is still in 2016, always like one step or at least a half a step ahead of all of the rest of the processor fabrication industry in terms of things like processor shrinks. So the Intel roadmap was a step ahead and it was aggressive and it was going to deliver more performance per watt, which when you're looking at a G5 tower, doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But of course, Apple is thinking more in terms of portable and mobile devices, um, probably at this point, mostly thinking in terms of the PowerBook lines and what they could do there. I thought, I thought one of the interesting things here is that he, he talks about performance per watt as if it's some sort of actual unit. And there's a graph in the keynote where he says we get like we get like 27 units of performance per watt from from PowerPC and we get 113 units. It's like what are those units? It's never fully quantified, but it is true that the Intel chips were more power efficient. So he goes through all of this all of this spiel about how they're going to make this transition and what it's going to mean in terms of improving their products, also emphasizing that there are still going to be some really great PowerPC products uh, that are still to be released before the transition is fully complete. And then he says, don't you believe me? Let's do the big reveal. And he had been doing demos in the keynote all along. This is about an hour into the keynote, maybe not a half hour into the keynote. He says, all right, here's the big reveal. See that Mac that I've already done like three demos on? Yeah, that one. <laughs> it's running, and it was an iMac enclosure, which was interesting. So that one was probably like a one-off or maybe two because they probably had a backup, right? <laughs> right. Um, and actually, I don't know, maybe this is a little bit conspiracy theory of me, but there's part of me that kind of doubts that that was actually an Intel Mac on stage. I'm, I'm, because the big reveal was made, he says, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to go to about this computer or about this Mac. I forget where we stood in that renaming uh, at that point. He goes, you know, about this Mac. And it shows the processor details. And there it says that it's a Pentium 4. And I'm like, okay, that could just be a bitmap. You just replaced, the, <laughs> you know, like you just replaced the about this Mac window. But that was supposed to be the thing that that really proved it that uh, the hardware was not only something that they had been thinking about and were planning towards, but something that existed in the real world. I guess I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> so as we stand at that WWDC keynote, we were still in 2005. So this was the big announcement of the plans for the future, the kickoff of the transition. But of course, we said this is the 10th anniversary of Intel Max, so it has to be 2006 when those Intel Macs actually showed up on the scene. And that was the case that they were introduced and released on January 10th of 2006. Yep. In, in like healthily into the Mac world expo keynote, Steve says we've, we promised that by summer 2007 we'll be finished. And we're pleased to report that we're, we're going quicker than we expected. We're going to announce the first Intel Macs today. And they're the iMacs, 17-inch and 20-inch iMacs, pretty much unchanged from the G5 iMacs going into that event. These were still the ones that had the front row remote that you could magnetically attach to the side and the eyesight up at the top, but they were still the, the white polycarbonate uh, 
and not like super widescreen. And, you know, great demo. It's it's an iMac. It runs just like the iMac you think, but it's twice as fast. It's better. We're already seeing the benefits of Intel paying off. And these were running uh, Core Duo processors, right? Yeah. That was the very first Intel processor line that went into things that were actually products and not developer kit machines. Yeah. So there's another benefit right there. We got dual cores in the iMac, a consumer level machine. It's pretty great. And the rest of the keynote happens and Steve is doing his recap of what they've talked about that day. And then he drops the one more thing. And I remember just being as blown away as all the hooting and hollering people uh, that you can hear in this keynote when Steve (laughs) unveils an Intel Mac laptop, the MacBook Pro 15 inch. And uh, it has a lot of things that we probably take for granted today probably the biggest of which is the eyesight in integrated into the display piece of the laptop. A huge applause break when this happens because up until then we'd had to carry around the the kind of like bullet cylinder eyesight and plug it into a firewire port if we wanted to video conference from a laptop and clip it onto the top of your screen. But this one had it built right in. It also had an IR port and came with the Apple remote for the full front row experience. And the other thing that the MacBook Pro introduced that we still have today, although not in every laptop, is the MagSafe power connector, which, of course, as we all know, has a nice little magnetic connection so that if someone trips over the cord, it just neatly breaks away from the computer instead of carrying the computer with it and causing problems. MagSafe had a, has another good 10-year run, but uh, <laughs> may be coming to an end, as we know, Yeah, with the, uh, the MacBook One as it's colloquially known, uh, with its USB-C connector and no MagSafe. Although the huge news out of CES, which is not really our topic of our show ever, but like last week, huge news was that uh, someone made a essentially a MagSafe that plugs into the USB-C port, and it's just a tiny little thing that'll break away in the same manner as MagSafe. Although it can't be exactly the same, because I'm pretty sure that's patented. Yeah. And I think whoever was discussing it on a podcast, maybe ATP, pointed out that it it's only power. So all the benefits of USB-C being your one port for data and video and audio and Ethernet and everything go out the window if you want to uh, MagSafe it up. I've also seen Kickstarters for mag- similar adapters with uh, magnetic technology for the audio jack in your phone. Uh. So if you're, you know, you could plug your headphones into a little thing and plug a little adapter into your phone's headphone jack. If someone yanks your earbuds out of your head, I don't know. Why would you want that? Half the time I've ever dropped my phone is because the audio cable has come out. Yeah, I, I don't know. Anyway, MagSafe was is a well-beloved technology that was also introduced at this time. Yes. And in going through the features of the MacBook Pro and uh, you know, like all the reasons for it to exist, Steve reiterates the performance per watt metric. And he references like the kind of mythical PowerBook G5 that never came to be. He says that they they tried it and they could never get a right balance of fitting a the powerful G5 processor into a laptop that probably didn't like burn your pants or have more than like 5 minutes of battery. Not that they haven't released some Mac laptops since then that <laughs> did just that. Right. Uh but it 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 was a nice way to reiterate that uh just like Ed said, you probably don't think about performance per watt when you're thinking of a desktop machine that's always plugged into the wall. Right, who cares if it's using 80 watts or 60 watts or 40 watts? I mean, it comes out at a you know a dollar here, a dollar there in your electric bill at the end of the month. And here we are in 2016, and we're griping about the fact that our phones don't have enough charge. Uh, like you know, the iPhone six and six S has a camera bump. Why couldn't they make the whole case a millimeter thicker and fill the rest of it with battery? Like, well, Apple was thinking about the same things with laptops, and if they were going to continue accelerating the the power of their laptops, the IBM architecture just wasn't going to cut it. Right, but that was the exact reason that the MacBook Pro 15-inch was such a huge one more thing reveal was because just before that, it was plausible to make the joke that an Intel-powered Mac would sound as loud as a vacuum cleaner and require all of this extra equipment and massive fans just to keep it from 
like you said, Brian, setting on fire, basically. So you would assume that, yeah, the desktop machines, because at that point, the desktop iMacs were not so, so, so skinny as they are today and using almost exclusively laptop-based parts or mobile-based parts. So you would figure, okay, in a larger iMac case, they would have the opportunity to get that balance right of power consumption. Um, you have the benefit of going to the wall and not having to worry about drawing from a battery. You have bigger fans and a larger footprint for dissipating that heat. And then to say, oh yeah, one more thing, we actually fit it all into a 15-inch laptop was a huge technological achievement. And all through 2006, Apple kept on with these technological achievements. You said that at the at this announcement, they basically said, we're actually moving a little bit faster than we thought. Releasing two products instead of one is a step in that direction. But then really completing the transition through in, they were looking into 2007, Apple completed the tr transition to Intel hardware in 2006 across, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is every single Mac product that they had at the time. Yeah. So we hit the 17-inch and 20-inch iMacs. We hit the MacBook Pro 15-inch. In February, they released a Mac Mini that was based on the Intel architecture. April came a MacBook Pro 17-inch. Then the Just MacBook non-Pro uh, just a month later in May. Replacing not only the iBook consumer-level laptop, but also the 12-inch PowerBook G4. Right. So consolidation there. The Mac Pro in that cheese grater former G5 case, uh, no longer a dev kit, now a real product in August. And even as far as the XServe, although, of course, those were using a uh, different Intel processor architecture. I think they were Xeon from the beginning. Uh, but the XServes even uh, brought up the end in just November of 2006. So that's five, six major products in the span of 11 months. They, they were really cranking on the hardware engineering in that year. As we were talking about when we were introducing the transition, it wasn't all just hardware, though. There's a whole layer of software that has to exist in order for the Macintosh OS to run on this new architecture, as well as your favorite first-party and third-party applications to run on. In. Right, and we glossed over this a little bit. Uh, as we moved on to hardware topics and saw those through over the next uh, year and a half after the initial announcement. But this was of primary concern because this was a WWDC announcement and developers sitting in the crowd are going to think, okay, well, you've, you've managed the impossible with negotiating a good deal with Intel where you're getting the parts for a good price and you're not going to have to use their insipid advertising strategies but what does this mean for us? What does this mean for Mac OS? We just did this whole classic to OS ten thing, and that was different. So what are we going to have to do now? And what the heck's going to happen to OS ten? Are we going to OS 11? Are we starting over again? What's the deal? Well, this was the other big reveal in the WWDC keynote, which I... It's completely mind-blowing still to this day. This is one of those things like only in Steve Jobs' Apple would this, would this kind of project ever happen. And he phrased it like this. Mac OS X has been leading a secret double life <laughs> for the past five years. And what he meant by a secret double life was that literally from the beginning of OS X development, Everything had been developed side-by-side, side, both on PowerPC architecture and on Intel, which means that going back in five years, they were working on even earlier Pentium-based hardware internally at Apple. Uh, he does a very corny thing where he's like, in this building, satellite zoom, 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 crosshairs. There, they did it. It was top secret. But really, it was top secret. I mean, that was one of the interesting things here was that, okay, the Wall Street Journal leaked the business partnership deal aspect of this, but they had no idea what was going to happen with the software either. And this was just a huge coup because obviously many people had to be devoted to this. This had to touch on 
anyone who is working in operating system or application development at Apple, basically their entire software team, had to at least have someone on each team who knew about this and was working towards it. Because Job says that they knew that as they were creating roadmaps and goals for what they could do with different pieces of software, you couldn't go forward with a feature that was not going to work at all on the Intel architecture. And this sense of like monumental accomplishment, especially at the OS level, to have it working on both seamlessly, uh, didn't just stop after the big announcement. A couple years later, when Steve was back on stage announcing OS 10.5 Leopard, he was kind of going through the history of OS 10. And he said, uh, you might consider Leopard to be our sixth major release because, of course, you got 10.0, and now .5. And he said, no, we've already had a sixth major release, and that was the Intel release of OS 10, which was Tiger at the time. And, uh, and so he slides in kind of a, another representation of tiger on this timeline and i and that's another way to look at it that like you know we we think of the os 10 releases as big cats and you know with each different big cat means like that's enough of of a change but throughout the entire development process each big cat worked on intel and we never got to have the kind of intel big cat whatever (laughs) feline is left to name for that it it goes around in the little bunny suit (laughs) yeah So that covered the operating system and the developers at this point are still, I like the reaction to this. It's a, it's a big applause. And one, one person in the crowd who gets picked up on, on the ambient mic just has like a huge cackle of laughter. Like, oh no, you could not have possibly, but that's still the environment in the room is like, all right, Apple, good for you. You put together this monumental years spanning triple secret project. <laughs> so OS 10 is running on Intel uh, hardware, but what about our apps? They aren't going to run on Intel hardware. And this is where there's another big announcement, which is to say that there's going to be a format for apps that is the universal binary that runs on both PowerPC and on Intel, and that these app binaries will be somewhat bigger than a binary compiled for one or the other, but not necessarily double the size. There's some very interesting efficiencies that are going on there. And all of that is, of course, happening within Xcode. This is, I think, a really interesting uh, turn in the overall history of Apple. You know, We have now 10 years of retrospective on this. But at this point, Xcode was an interesting developer uh, environment that was being the first, it was the first party option for developers to use on OS 10, but it was still just an option. And Steve mentions what is it going to take using Xcode to get apps up and running for, uh, for the Intel hardware in the not so distant future. And he says, okay, if you've got a Cocoa app, you basically have to do like a, an afternoon's worth of tweaks and then just recompile it and everything will be fine. And we've certainly heard that line in keynotes uh, ever since, where there's been some sort of significant change, like the, the move to 64-bit. Um, or there have been, I think, a couple of changes on iOS, uh, where the system-on-a-chip architecture has changed. Obviously not a complete architecture overhaul, but at WWDC, there's either Craig Federighi or uh, or Tim Cook or whoever's up on stage says, now developers, we know you've been through this before. Spend a couple hours, recompile it, and everything will be fine. Just got to make sure that you're actively updating your apps and everything moves forward into the future. But that was new at this point. Uh, so he says, if you've got a Cocoa app, you're really set. If you've got a Carbon app running on OS X, it's going to take a little more work, but then you just recompile it and you get a universal binary. Everything is fine. It's the magic of Xcode. And then he says, those of you who are using MetroWorks to write carbon apps, stop that. (laughs) (laughs) Again, this is in graph form and they just get an extremely long bar of how long this is going to take them because step one is move your project into Xcode. And this is a point where it no longer becomes optional. 
if you want to do true application development on the Mac, the only way is through Xcode because it's going to get you the tools that you need to be on the latest architecture. And from that, they have never looked back. And uh, Xcode is the only way to develop for iOS and tvOS and watchOS and all the new OSs. And you still need a Mac to develop on those platforms, even if the, the end user who might be running your software on those platforms doesn't have a Mac in their home. It all, yeah, it all comes back down to this. I also like that Universal has been repurposed from an application that will work on PowerPC and Intel to an application that will work on an iPhone and an iPad in the same bundle. And what if you are an end user of some third-party applications and the developer doesn't uh, issue a timely update that's a, a recompiled universal binary? Are you just sunk as the, uh, the end user, as the consumer? Not entirely, because Apple also built a kind of real-time translation layer into OS X, which they called Rosetta. And there's a fun little tagline on the now defunct product page for Rosetta that Apple itself calls it the most amazing software you'll never see. We'll put a link to the Internet Archive version of that page in our show notes because it truly was. It wasn't like the classic layer, which actually booted up a classic environment in the early days of OS X for you to run your old classic Mac OS apps. And that gets a mention in the keynote. Steve's like, you don't have to start a separate operating system. He's talking about it like, that was ridiculous and terrible. And that is the past. That was an ugly transition. This is going to be a pretty transition. Yeah, it was basically seamless. Uh, there was no environment to spin up. It happened on the fly. And it covered a pretty big swath of applications. If your application wasn't carbonized, it wasn't going to cover it. And if your application targeted the G5 processor specifically, it wasn't going to cover it. And so some things like Apple's Pro apps, which they were going to update anyway because they're Apple and they were running the secret double life, uh, but there's similar equivalents like maybe Adobe Premiere or like big processor-intensive apps that were focused and fine-tuned to the G5 at the time of transition did need to be recompiled and couldn't be handled by the just-in-time translation of Rosetta. And of course, this did also mark the end of the classic environment with that full emulation of OS 9. That was absolutely not going to get carried forward into uh, the future versions and Intel hardware because... Yeah, they started doing everything on Intel and PowerPC when they started building OS X, but that was a clean break that OS 9 was in the past emulated. Well, I mean, now we can do it really emulated um, because we know we do it. We, we, we enter the basilisk every once in a while, <laughs> um, but that's because we're throwing, you know, th that's a different type of emulation that's going on. But there is not going to be any first party emulation, seamless or otherwise, of classic Mac apps from this point forward. And so, uh, like you mentioned, Brian, we were in the 10.4 Tiger era this time, and Tiger was the last version of OS X to even allow you to go back into the classic uh, environment. And that makes sense, because at this point, that was two major steps behind. And I think... Again, this is a trend that we've seen over these past 10 years is that Apple is, they're always driving towards the future at, at sometimes a relentless pace, but they're always okay with one step behind what the current uh, top of the line or the current feature that's uh, being promoted for the future is. If you're one step behind, you're probably still okay. If you're two steps behind, you're off the back. And to that point, Rosetta itself did not last in OS X for very long. It launched with Tiger, obviously, the first release of OS X to run on Intel, and then it only continued through in Leopard and Snow Leopard. By the time Lion rolled around, you had to be Intel. And that was that caused some consternation. Uh, we mentioned that in our Clarisworks episode, because AppleWorks was a Carbon app. Or no, yeah, it was a PowerPC Carbon app but never got an Intel uh, version. And that meant that uh, as it was replaced by Pages and the iWork suite, 
that it was it was being lost off the back. So I know that yes, yes, it's 2016. There are people still to this day who are clinging, clinging <laughs> to their copies of uh, of Snow Leopard uh, because it has it still runs Rosetta. And if you need that older software that is really, really two steps back, maybe more than that at this point, um, it's t- it's still technically possible if you have a somewhat older Mac. But I mean, I've purchased a Mac recently, and it came with El Capitan. There's you know the, whatever operating system you come in at with your new hardware, there's no retreating past that. And so with uh, with Rosetta going away. At the end of ten point six, it's it's very much a thing of the past, except on legacy hardware. There's another piece of uh, convenient timing as we record this. The today, January twelfth, this is the day that Microsoft has announced it's no longer going to update legacy versions of Internet Explorer. I think they're going all in on their new browser Edge, uh, but there are plenty of uh, companies out there that developed their web applications or intranets to work with Microsoft's rendering agent specifically and all of its quirks. IE6. For so long, people refused to upgrade beyond IE6 or even now like IE8 or IE9 or IE10. Uh, and it's it's the same thing. If if your software is legacy enough, then it's it's designed for a certain browser to run it or a certain operating system to run on, and you just can't upgrade beyond it, you're going to be stuck. And uh, speaking of Microsoft... Another benefit of having Macintoshes with Intel processors is a bit of industry standardization. Ed mentioned this earlier, but now that Macs have the same hardware on the inside as Windows-based machines, emulating, or not even needing to emulate, but running Windows on your Macintosh becomes a lot easier. And even easier still, when Apple releases Boot Camp, some software straight from Apple that lets you uh, install Windows and the necessary drivers on a Macintosh so you could natively boot into that other OS. (laughs) And a lot of people do that uh, to this day, especially for gaming applications. Still, in 2016, Windows PCs have the advantage in in games. But the fact of the matter is that Apple hardware, especially if you have relatively recent hardware, will run those games pretty well. But if there's not a Mac port, um, you know, a lot of things on Steam get ported these days, but not everything. You can switch over into Boot Camp and run those natively. And that's that's an important thing there, is that you're going for performance. Uh, like we said, there's always been the chance to emulate other operating systems. And, of course, the Intel transition made emulation much simpler, too. There were uh, Windows PC emulators like Virtual PC and uh, what was it? Real PC, the one that had the weird weird box last episode. Yep. <laughs> uh, but they were just they were just incredibly slow because they were having to not just run two operating systems at once, but also to emulate the hardware that that second operating system was running on. You remove that extra layer of doing virtualization on the Mac when you say, okay, well, I need to run two operating systems at once. So yeah, I'm going to need a lot of RAM to throw at this because otherwise both operating systems are going to be kind of choked out and performance will suffer. But at least I know that I'm not going to have to spend most of my CPU cycles pretending that it's a different CPU. You just say, okay, this this RAM is allocated over here and it's going to run this operating system Windows natively while macOS is running at the same time. So that's still all in the realm of third-party software, but really opened up a lot more opportunity there. And I think really drove a lot of people to the Mac in many ways, especially with developers. Um, I think many serious developers now have a Mac as their primary machine because it has all of the Unixy underpinnings of OS X, which are very useful for their work. But if they need to do serious Windows development, they can very quickly and almost seamlessly open up a virtualization environment, see them side by side, and get the benefits of both. This has also had the unintended, or maybe intended, consequence of some magazines or websites like The Verge 
or uh, in Gadget, being able to proclaim the best Windows laptop you can buy is a MacBook. Because for all intents and purposes, you can be running Windows natively, never need to boot into OS X. The command keys don't even have an Apple logo on them anymore. Uh, you may as well not even need to know that there's uh, Apple hardware surrounding your Windows experience. So this meant that Windows came to Macintosh hardware uh, in an official capacity in a way that worked really well and really seamlessly. How about the other way around? Not so fast. But people thought about this because, like we said, it was it was hardware and industry standardization. And if you know, if you want to build a gaming rig or uh, just a cheap PC for for many years, if you wanted a, a Windows PC, the cheapest way to get one was to build one yourself. Go to your local computer store or, or buy parts off the internet. Get a case, CPU, power supply. Build it all together yourself. Get a copy of Windows. Throw it on there. Everything works. So people thought, great. This means we're going to be able to do the same thing with the Mac because Apple hardware is great. It's beautiful. Some people want to pay extra for that and prize that, but some people just want an efficient box that for the lowest price. Maybe you just need a really cheap server, but you want it to run Mac OS or something like that. And so they thought, great, we're going to have all of the parts in the computer store will be available to us uh, and we'll still be able to run OS X on them. But no, because of course, one of the first things that happened after Steve Jobs came back to Apple was the killing of the clone program. And that meant that Apple was not willing to license its operating system anymore. Uh, and that tied the operating system closely to the hardware, but not necessarily in a technical sense, at least at first. But as things unfolded here and as the Intel Macs were, uh, were released and people saw how they were operating, they came to know the SMC on the logic board of Intel Macs, which is the system management controller. It's a piece of hardware and one of its functions is to make sure that you are es essentially obeying the Mac OS X user license. And so there is an interaction between hardware and software at boot that makes sure that if you're running, trying to run a copy of Mac OS, that you're working on real, genuine Apple hardware. And this is a feature that, like I said, lives on the logic board, but is not part of the processor itself. So if you go buy an off-the-shelf logic board, or if you go buy an off-the-shelf motherboard or logic board and just pop any Intel processor into it, it's not going to work. Thus came the small but vibrant community of Hackintosh creators. It wasn't that the SMC was uh, undefeatable physical uh, DRM on the operating system there were ways of getting around the SMC checks at boot to get third-party hardware to work with OS X. But as we know today with things like jailbreaking on iOS devices, this is a fragile and, yes, hacky, hence the name, Hackintosh, way of going about things. So someone would come up with essentially an exploit that would allow you to circumvent this check at startup Everything would be just so. Maybe, maybe, you know, if you had exactly the right combination of hardware, not everything was guaranteed. If you did the appropriate Hackintosh incantations and had a particular version of OS X, everything would boot and work properly for you. But, like with jailbreaking, almost every, even minor updates to the system, like even security updates, or 0.0.1 updates to the operating system could break this, and you would either have to hang behind on the old version of the operating system, or your Hackintosh would no longer boot. So the Hackintosh never really took off, and certainly couldn't take off as a commercial product, because Apple would totally sue anybody <laughs> who was trying to sell Hackintoshes. I mean, I guess you could sell one that came with essentially a blank hard drive, because you weren't trying to sell the operating system, but that's not really a fully-fledged product. So 
This really gave Apple the upper hand in terms of operating system flexibility. Yeah, we subscribe to all of the industry standards. You can run macOS, you can run Windows on our hardware, but that Mac operating system is not really going anywhere else. And so here we sit 10 years later, uh, recording this on Intel machines using macOS, and uh, Apple's clearly all the better for it. The, the performance per watt clearly paid off as the world moves to more and more mobile, untethered-to-the-wall devices. But with that in mind, does, is there another similar transition in the future that enables even higher performance per watt or more capable mobile devices? Yeah, and you know, we are, again, not a rumors show, not a speculation show, but I think that there are a couple interesting things that we have to touch on here that are current and perhaps future, and people in the Apple community have been talking about them seriously, because if you look at this, if you look at that slide that was put up of the three big transitions, their timing and what they entailed, we're at a point where there are maybe a couple uh, future transitions for Apple. Well, one is actually ongoing and one that might be a future transition that really mirror what was going on there. So they had 10 years with a processor architecture and big transition. Then in that next period, they had a significant software transition and then another architecture transition. And here we sit 10 years later. So in terms of software right now, of course, iOS is dominant uh, for Apple, especially the iPhone itself. And there we're seeing a huge software transition that's been the talk of WWDC for the past two years, which is the Objective-C to Swift transition. And, uh, of course, Swift is still in development. They're still nailing down all the details of the language. It's just gone open source, and things are very interesting there. That's clearly a transition that's in place. We're about a year and a half into it. And I think that, yeah, probably, what, WWDC 2017, so three years in, I think that it will be really clear, you know, maybe not this year, but the year after that they will come on stage at WWDC and say, look, here we are. We've had this transition over a couple of years, three years. Today, it's 100% possible to build an all Swift iOS app and it is the future. And if you're not there yet, do some tweaks and <laughs> recompile in Xcode and everything will be fine. We've told you this every year for the past 12 years. Um, but all going back to that initial Intel transition. And on the hardware side, we're also maybe on the cusp of another transition. A lot of people are, are starting to talk and have been talking about Apple's ARM-based chips. the From the A4 all the way up to the A9 and the A9X right now and the iPad Pro – Apple's proven that they're really good at powerful and efficient chip architecture. The iPad Pro's benchmarking on, you know, like raw numbers, equivalent to like a couple years old MacBook Air, are pretty close to like the just released MacBook One. And those are still running on Intel processors, eking out 10 to 12 hours of battery life at whatever level of performance is acceptable for a desktop machine. Well, and with the 12-inch MacBook, I think one of the big complaints with it, you know, it's a, it's a first-generation product, but one of the big complaints is it's underpowered. Why is it underpowered? Well, because it needs to be so efficient because it doesn't have space for a ton of battery. So it the same thing is happening here as exactly what was explained in the announcement of the Intel transition, which is we're looking at our roadmap for Intel it's not quite where we want to be on power, you know, on performance per watt. We're looking at ARM. We've got some really good ARM chips. And in this case, there doesn't have to be a big business deal. I mean, yes, Apple still has to maintain its weird business deals, like with, with Samsung manufacturing many of the A series system on chips, even though like they've sued each other. And you know, in one sense, they're huge enemies because Samsung is in the camp for Android, except they're making half of the iPhone yeah. <laughs> system on the chips. It's really weird in terms of that, but there's not a big new business deal that has to be done there. Apple owns the A9 architecture. They just have to have the physical plants to make it and put it into the products that they want. So perhaps we are ripe for uh, another transition. And it's interesting to see 
what will come of that. One thing that we're mentioning here is you know, how we think of those uh, ARM processors. And they mirror, you know, because they are an internal Apple product, they mirror, to me, the old uh, PowerPC chips that they use because we had the G3 and the G4 and the G5. And here they started with, you know, they have the A series and they increment them. But one of the things that's nice about that, I mean, they're not quite as public as the the G series of desktop chips was because those were in the names of the products. That was part of the public facing marketing language of how those computers were talked about. And not so much with the iOS devices, but they still talk about it. I mean, you just have to go to the, you know, the the tech specs page on on Apple.com to get that information. It's not too far hidden from the public. And those transitions that happen every year or two are really nice and easy to follow. In these 10 years with Intel chips, I will admit, even though I'm following Apple very closely and what's going on, I have a hard time remembering what goes where with the nomenclature of different processor generations with Intel. You know, it's like, is, is this, um, is this grassy bridge or, you know, uh, or broad Lake yeah. or Skyfall <laughs> or like, you know, they, they have, they have all of these names that they're like all code names and, yeah, I mean, we do that in Apple. We we have all of, you know, OS ten is all code names. That's how they're publicly marketed. But I just cannot keep track of when different processor architectures go from one to the other with the Intel chips. And maybe, maybe with all of the other problems and uh, angst that it would cause for for developers and so forth, um, maybe though one small benefit of a ARM transition would be. Ah, we're just on the A10 now. It's that simple. <laughs> yeah, the the number in the chips don't correspond with iPhone model numbers anymore and probably never did with iPad or certainly watch or TV, but they do correspond with iOS. So it would also be a way to say like if you have an A10, you can run iOS 10 or you know like there's there are benefits there, just like you're saying. We shall see. So that probably wraps it up for this episode, which focused, of course, on the Intel transition. Happy 10 years, Intel Max. And may you have at least a couple more to come. <laughs> I, I, would put, I would put good money. Um, we don't have to go infinite timescale. I would, I would guess that in 10 years, if there are Macs, they are not running on Intel chips. Say it right here. So it's been a very good run, and we're happy to, uh, happy to celebrate it. If you'd like to see the show notes for this episode or any of our other episodes, they are at simplebeep.com slash episodes. We also have a contact form on our website, simplebeep.com. If you'd like to send us any stories about your favorite Intel Mac or your favorite moment of this Intel Mac transition, if you'd like to send us a quick piece of feedback, we are also on Twitter at simple underscore beep. You can also find each of us individually on Twitter. I'm at Acormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.